On the Pilot TV podcast this week, we're taking to the skies with the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, as well as strapping in for a little Teutonic terror in Sky's German-language horror show Hausen and catching up with Gordon Bombay in Disney's new throwback series, The Mighty Ducks Game Changers. I'm James Dyer and welcome to the Pilot TV podcast, your weekly guide to everything worthwhile on the box and, let's be honest, a few things that probably aren't. Joining me today on a show that she last week described as the patriarchy in podcast form is a woman who I've come to suspect is never going to get around to watching The Leftovers, no matter how many times Boyd and I mansplain it to her. It's Terry White. How are you, Terry? Hi, James. <laughs> Hello. No, I haven't watched it. No, no shot there. Right. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> also with us is a man who etched his name onto my shit list this week when he vetoed my choice to review the new animated show by the creator <laughs> of The Walking Dead. Instead, demanding I sit through the aforementioned weird, surrealist German language horror show, it is Boyd Sternficker Hilton. <laughs> <laughs> oh god spoiler alert i'm, a po- I'm sorry i'm sorry um, how you doing yeah. boys uh i'm doing fine thanks yeah i think part of the reason why terry probably hasn't got around to watching the leftovers is she's been burned by the whole experience of the newsroom and is still recovering from that trauma i mean you know the west wing kind of was a, a really important moment in my friendship with james because um and yes we do have a friendship because I was like, oh, my God, James has introduced me to the single greatest TV show. And maybe I should listen more to what he says and trust what he says. And then he got me to watch the newsroom and (laughs) single-handedly just destroyed any trust that was ever built. So, you know, that's what's happened now. I mean, that seems fair. It was worth a shot. But, I mean, Boyd Boyd is recommending The Leftovers Mm. as much, if not more, than I am. Mm, So, surely you should listen to Boyd. Good point. Yeah, that is a good point. All right, well, okay, so fine. So you haven't watched The Leftovers. So what have you been watching, Terry? What has taken up your time this week? <laughs> so um, we've watched a few different things this week. Oh, so God. I, yeah, I um, watched uh, the new James Bulger documentary oh. on Channel 5. That sounds cheery. Um, it's called Lost Boy, The Killing of James Bulger, right? And everything about this sounds... Pretty awful. Channel 5 documentary about, obviously, a very heinous crime in this country's history. However, I have to say, it was, and I don't know if, Boydie, if you've had um, a chance to watch it, but it is, like, brilliantly, forensically done. They've got, it's a two-parter, and they've got interviews with um, his brothers, who were born after he died with his mum, Denise, with the original investigating officers. It's it's really fascinating, actually. Yeah, I knew it was – I haven't watched it, but I knew it had been made totally with the involvement of the family. So I think that's yeah. the key thing, isn't it? I think that's yeah. that, that that's a huge of huge importance, yeah. But I, I will watch it now. The other thing I watched, another documentary, was the Caroline Flack documentary, which was on Channel 4 on Wednesday night, I want to say. And again, this was done completely with her family. So what um, a lot of people didn't realise, I didn't realise, was that she was working with filmmakers to make a documentary about her life just before she died. She'd had kind of meetings with the filmmaker team. She was obviously going through uh, a lot of drama in her life. At that point, she'd been charged with assaulting her boyfriend. It was all over the tabloid press. Obviously, she sadly took her own life. um, And essentially, they picked up the story with her family 
with her mom, her twin sister, a handful of her very closest friends. And it was really, I found it really distressing, I have to say. It kind of dug into the tabloid exposure and kind of how that contributed to her mental distress and her lifelong mental health issues, really. She'd tried to end her life before. She'd struggled um, emotionally a lot over the years, most of which wasn't known at all because she felt very strongly that, you know, to, to keep her job and to keep her uh, profile, I suppose, that people couldn't find out what she, that she was struggling privately. And it was it was a really hard watching places. I found it really upsetting. Did you watch it, Boyd? Yeah, I did. I thought, yeah, yeah, I it was, you would. yeah. It was really, it was, it was pretty devastating. I thought her mum and her sister were so brilliant on it, though. Like just in terms of um, just laying bare their feelings and just um, yeah, I just thought they came across so well. You know, um, the they mom, really did. Yeah, incredible, incredible. How do you? How are you able to even? Um, I don't know how you're able, kind of in your first year of grief, to be able to sit and talk about it. It must be so incredibly painful and devastating, I can't imagine. But they did, and and it makes you, you know, you watch these things and you think about everybody's complicity, really, and, you know, you you if you buy a paper with her private life splashed all over and, and it, it really kind of raises similar questions about the press around treatment, especially of uh, women in the public eye. It raises similar questions to the Britney documentary. It does feel like there's kind of a, a, an analysis at the moment of of how especially famous young women are treated in the public eye. All really kind of valid points about exposure, um, intrusion, where does the line come where you're actually intruding into their, their lives. Um, yeah, so it was a it was a really really difficult watch, but it's a, it you felt like you I suppose knew her a bit better by the end, and it was clear her family wanted to be her voice now that she kind of can't be that herself. And then the other thing I watched was for some reason I've decided to watch the entire season six of Sex in the City. I'm I'm, I'm sorry, what? Um, okay, wait, 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 wait. Back up a second. So instead of watching the leftovers, you've decided <laughs> to stage a rewatch of just the last season of Sex in the City. Yes. So I I watched a couple of um, season fives, but season six starts with her relationship with Jack Berger. And I have so many thoughts about Jack Berger, who is a was her um, boyfriend briefly. He's a fellow writer like her, but he's massively insecure, massively threatened by her success. Basically a massive prick. And <laughs> like I watched the entire thing and I was I was more furious, I think, than I was the first time I watched it because I was like, oh, you know, it's really romantic to go out with a fellow writer who he makes like jokes about Jack Kerouac. That's the kind of guy he is. And I was more furious this time because famously, and I'm sure you remember this, James, he broke up with her on a post-it. Who can forget? He said, I can't, I'm sorry, don't hate me, and left it stuck to her computer screen. Wow. Post-it. Have you ever broken up with somebody on a post-it? Never on a post-it. It feels a bit, I mean, to be fair, it's of its era, isn't it? Nowadays, it would just be like a WhatsApp message, wouldn't it? I mean, post-it seems a bit late 90s. You dumped somebody by WhatsApp? <laughs> Anyway, let's move on. <gasps> you so have. You've dumped somebody by WhatsApp, you dreadful person. 2021, everyone has dumped somebody by WhatsApp. It's the given form of communication. 
Oh my God, you dreadful human. <laughs> if you're listening to this and you were and you were dumped by James over WhatsApp, please know that my uh, Twitter DMs may be closed, but my Instagram DMs are open. Feel free to slide in and tell me your story. Well, look forward to that on next week's if you, podcast. If you have suffered from any of the issues featured in today's podcast, <laughs> yes. please. <laughs> Please get in touch with me and let me use it as ammunition. Oh Thank you so God. much. <laughs> uh, Boydie, have you watched any individual seasons of Sex and the City that you'd like to regale us with? Uh, not Sex and the City, no. But uh, my the, my favourite thing I watched this week, so I, I, was, I was going to, I consulted with some of my followers on Twitter as to where the extent to which I could celebrate um, football on television this week. It's been, uh, all I'm going to say is, yeah, Terry's face is like, you know, but like you talk about reality TV, yeah, you talk yes, about your yes, nerd. Yes. No. What do you mean? hundred percent. hundred percent. Me? The face you are pulling, Terry, that face is yeah. the face that I have yeah. for this whole segment every exactly. fucking week. Exactly. Exactly. No, I fully embrace the reality TV, obviously. <laughs> well, yeah. so I'm not going to go into it, but I did have permission. For like Sophie Petzl, who's a big Arsenal fan on, on Twitter, was like, yeah, go for it. Talk about it. Sophie's All not allowed to is... give you permission to hijack yes, this she segment. Is. Yes, she is. She's she's a writer of major television programmes. What about what are you? What have you achieved? You mean other than looking like a shit Jason Statham? <laughs> Anyway, all I'm going to say is it's been a brilliant TV week for Arsenal fans because there's been a whole Arsenal Spurs psychodrama going on and it's involved people like Jermaine Genus, who is now kind of as he's an ex slash celebrity anyway. Why am I asking this? And um, the, Jose Marino is the worst man in football and it's a whole thing. And so what I'm going to say is it's been an incredible week of soap opera which of which we, Arsenal fans like me and Sophie have emerged triumphant and it's been brilliant. So I'm just going to leave so, it at that. I'm um, moving on. Are you saying football is becoming a bit like the WWE? Is it that is what you're bit, saying? Yeah, it's a bit... It, it, I mean, it is a so proper football, you know, it completely is. But th- sometimes th- th- uh, sometimes a few games happen within one week and they just it just becomes this brilliant thing for one team, for of one team over the other. And that has been that case this week with Arsenal Spurs. But the best thing I watched I know this what you're week was say. a documentary. You got, go oh, on. no, I don't. Oh, well, well, no. Oh. See, I'm stunned that neither of you have mentioned James McAvoy's Frosted uh, Peaks. Well, that oh, was lovely. I did watch yeah, I did that. Watch that yeah. well. <laughs> That's on yeah. my list. That was very... Erotic. Yeah. yeah. I didn't even know I felt that way about James McAvoy. I'm not here for Bake Off, as you know, but anyone who makes a demon cake is okay in my books. That's all I'm saying. He was brilliant, it has to be said, um, a baker. His his cakes were phenomenal. And he was on with David Baddiel, who was terrible. I mean, I love David, but his his efforts were... Wasn't Daisy Ridley on the same one? Daisy Ridley was the week before. She was great. Yeah. I mean, my God, the celeb booking for this series has been incredible. Daisy Ridley and James McAvoy, I mean, you know, They've definitely stepped it up. So, yeah. So, you, you're actually kind of allowed to talk about that, aren't you, James? Because these are nerd heroes we're talking about. Yes. Nerd yes. film so heroes. There's, there's some crossover. <laughs> yeah. There is a conjunction of the spheres, to use Witcher parlance. <laughs> that really is a convergence of the spheres. But that was great. So, thanks for reminding me. Yes, Celebrity Bake Off for Stand Up to Cancer was brilliant this week with James McAvoy, um, etc. But, no, what, my favourite thing that I've watched this week was a documentary on Sky Arts called Blitzed. The 80s Blitz Kids story. And it was two fucking hours on Saturday night of joy for those of us who for whom the 80s are the decade of music and i still and i will never ever renounce the 80s it's the story of how this kind of small little club 
was founded in Soho in London in 1980, pretty much, um, by a guy called Rusty Egan and Steve Strange, who then formed Visage together. It's a classic 80s group, Visage. And people like Boy George and Marilyn and Spandau Ballet, Gary Kemp and Martin Kemp, and these brilliant women who went on to become like designers, costume designers in film and TV, or um, just or fashion designers anyway, all gathered in this place which ended up being called The Blitz, this um, club, and music of Kraftwerk and Bowie inspired it. And it's all about basically the birth of the new romantic 80s synth music era. And it was just so fascinating. I mean, the documentary itself, you know, it was fairly straightforward. And in fact, they have so little footage of, for example, the actual club itself, that they have to kind of show the same footage quite a few times within the two hours. But it did it did um, establish the context, the social context, particularly of 1979, the Thatcher era, the grim, it was like a three-day working week in the country. There were piles of rubbish in the streets. It was grim. It really, it was really fascinating to see people like Gary Kemp and Boyd George talking about how grim the country it was at that point. And and how this and that that directly led to the birth of the new romantics of, of kind of finding glamour and excitement and subversion within fashion and music um, and video pop videos and everything. It was so so from that point of view, it really really worked for me, and it was just brilliant memories of that time. And I still love all that music. I still love you know I still love Visage. I still love Spandau Ballet. So it was an absolute thrill, and it's on Sky Arts, and that was my favourite thing. I watched this week, although I have must just quickly say I have watched Line of Duty episode two and it's fucking amazing. You've got Line of Duty episode two. Yeah. <gasps> yeah. And you know how Exciting. you know how Martin Constance said in the interview um, we did in uh, in Empire in the new issue of Empire, he talks about how there's a three episode run in this series. There's the best one yet ever in the whole history of the show. So I'm constantly working out. So two was so amazing that I'm now thinking, does it mean two, three, four? But surely in a seven part, you're going to think it's got to be five, six, seven. So I don't know. So I'm going to be constantly working out what he means. But two is incredible. Interesting, interesting. I am quite envious of you. I haven't watched anything this week. <sighs> Why? No, and this is not my fault. I haven't watched anything this week because every single evening this week has been taken up by Zack Snyder movies. Uh, this has okay. been my entire week. I embarked on a nine-hour Snyder binge, uh, which was Man of Steel, Batman vs Superman, Ultimate, three-hour cut, and then the four-hour Snyder cut of Justice League. Uh, so I've not had time to watch any TV at all. That said, I did watch about eight episodes of Game of Thrones last weekend, so that's uh, I'm, I'm powering through my, my rewatch there and enjoying it a lot. I'll be honest with you, I had forgotten quite quite how porny the first season of oh, Game of yeah. Thrones is. Yeah. Like, it's properly porny, but not like, boo, there's willies everywhere. Like, it's quite... Yeah, because in that era, because, of course, HBO was was famous in that era for having loads of uh, loads of sex and gratuitous nudity. I mean, that was one mm. of its kind mm. of core values, I think. Yeah, absolutely. All new, all new shows <laughs> had loads and loads of sex and nudity in them. I was, I was unprepared for the amount of naked women and, indeed, like, Alfie Allen's cock makes quite an early appearance. I was like, right, Okay, good to know. Thanks for that, Alfie. It's uh, bloody hell. Um, it's uh, bloody hell. That's a brilliant yeah, response well, to Alfie Allen's penis. <laughs> yeah, I mean, why not? <laughs> of course, he does end up having it locked bloody off, doesn't hell. he? Isn't, isn't yeah, I think maybe that's why it appears quite right. early on, so it's, that you can kind of get yeah. used to it as a sort of a, as a character. It's a Chekhovian yeah. thing, isn't it? If the gun that appears in the first act goes off in the third. It's Chekhov's cock. Yeah. <laughs> it's Chekhov's cock. Is it extraordinary? <laughs> it's it extraordinary. 
extraordinary penis. Not to cost, but I mean, it's not that extraordinary. But uh, yes, I like the it's idea of it as Chekhov's cock. If you see Alfie Allen's penis in the first season, then it has to be lopped off by one of the latter ones. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's absolutely true. But yes, it is It is unnecessarily. And they and rightly got a lot of shit for that. Like, Amelia Clark spends almost no time with her clothes on at that mm. point in the show, which, you know, you do kind of she feel for her She must be pretty young. How old is she? In that? She's about 26, I think. She's playing 17. It is all a bit inappropriate, isn't it? The interesting thing about the Zack Snyder thing, I was just going to say, actually, is if we, kept, we, we basically the decision to whether that was going to be a four-part or whatever miniseries, effectively, or yeah. a kind of film, was taken very mm. late in the day, wasn't it? So we could have ended up reviewing on this this. As we a, could as have a, been. As a we TV thing. Been. And it kind of, I watched it as well. And it kind of is, I felt it kind of like is really a, a, a TV thing, isn't it? It's split into chapters, yeah, it's split into isn't it? Chapters. Like it's literally split yeah. into episodes. Yeah. yeah, so it does feel as much a series as it does a movie. But I, I actually, you know, and I've been slagging off the Snyderverse for as long as I've, as long as it's been in existence. But actually, having watched it all through this week, it kind of works. Oh, I really liked it. I, I, yeah, I, really, I, liked, I liked it, it yeah. yeah a lot. It's, it's a massive improvement on the original cut. And also having watched, you know, Man of Steel, I think, didn't hold up as well as I thought it would. But the ultimate cut of... Uh, Batman vs Superman massively improves that film in that it finally makes sense which it didn't theatrically and then this one even though it doesn't need to be four hours even though if you took out all the slow-mo it would probably be about 45 minutes long <laughs> yeah. and even though it does feature a solid minute of an Icelandic woman singing at the sea um, it's good it's good I liked it a lot mm. some weird musical there's interludes. a lot of Nick Cave. There's a hell of a lot of yeah, Nick there Cave. There is, yeah. 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 Um, there's a lot of slow motion sequences set to songs. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, that, yeah. That's, uh, that's a I big, big feature. I can sense Terry getting, already getting dis- disapproving that we're crossing the streams because it is, it is officially hey, a film. I'm saying it? film is probably more on brand than fucking whatever reality bollocks Terry sort of brings up on a weekly basis. So. You, just because you have spent all week watching that and watching Zero Kelly, you are now trying to manipulate the podcast to be a also film podcast so that you actually have something to contribute. I think you're fine, Terry. It was on television and it was a one-off dramatic event. I think you're fine. It was a one-off four-hour feature-length dramatic event like many of the films you forced to review on this podcast. My arse. <laughs> <laughs> Your arse, then. <laughs> well, that's been what we've been watching. So um, let's move on to this week's listener question. And this comes from Stephen Shires. And he asks, what are the worst episodes of your favourite shows? The ones you struggle to rewatch? So I have two from The West Wing. <laughs> I, oh, actually, I've got I've got three from the West Wing. Oh, so I um, as I've talked about several times, it's the greatest show to ever appear on television. In that, but you are is right. Is it perfect? Oh no, 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 no. Um, <laughs> I don't know what was up there. <laughs> so, um, the first one, and this is a weird one because part of it is excellent, but there's something so egregious in it that it destroys the episode. This is. The 102nd episode of The West Wing. This is Anne Key. Oh, God. Leo in Vietnam. <laughs> Leo, that's flash, those flashback scenes. Yeah. <laughs> unacceptable. It's like, d- we expected more of you, The West Wing, and you completely... It's like it's like holding these principles for 101 episodes and then copying them out the fucking window to do flashbacks to Vietnam. No, unacceptable. Um, and my second pick is Access. 
Yeah. Which is oh, the God, famous yeah. That's the worst by a long way. TV documentary yeah. film crew episode where CJ is being followed essentially for a well, a tele documentary uh, on a typical day and then this weird things happen with a shootout with the FBI and some kids and the weirdest thing is a the mix of of footage and normal show doesn't work. But everybody suddenly behaves very unlike themselves. And I think what they were trying to do was show how you might change your character if you were being followed by something that would end up being transmitted on the telly. But CJ is the least like CJ she has ever been in any episode of The West Wing ever. It's like a fucking Body Snatchers episode. <laughs> it's It looks shit. There's, that whole FBI thing is ridiculous and contrived. Um I hated it. I hated it. I hated it. I hated it. So what you mean, it was a fascinating exploration of the observer effect, uh, as physicists will know. Don't be a bellend. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, no, I'm with you. I'm with you on Anne Kay. That Leo in Vietnam is awful. I remember when I interviewed Rob Lowe and he said that was the first episode sort of post-talking that he watched. And he was like, what the fuck is this? And turned it off. Um, but I'll, I'll see you that and also add to that. Leo in Vietnam, I will add Leo in Cuba, the episode 90 Miles uh, Away, which is also terrible, uh, uh, which shows Leo when he was an alcoholic and he's in Cuba and, and Kate's there and it's that's not good at all. But I think those I three... I have to say, drunk, he, drunk Leo was not his strong mm. suit. He's an <laughs> exceptional actor. He deserved all of the awards he won. But drunk Leo, no. You, that's you, didn't, like, you didn't buy him. No, that was bad, bad acting. Yeah, it's hard to do drunk acting. It's one of the hardest things, and he did not. He did not succeed. <laughs> but I, Paul Bettany succeeded. Drunk, yeah. drunk vision is one of the best things on television. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's true. That is true. Yeah, but I totally agree about the episode about CJ. What a disaster! And also because CJ is such a brilliant character and to have an old episode. I was so looking. Yeah. For, I remember when when that episode went out live. I was everyone's looking forward to seeing a whole episode centered on her. I was absolute disaster. <laughs> Completely fucked it yeah. up. Yeah. It's like, you know, the long goodbye, which is the one where she goes back mm. and sees her father who's got Alzheimer's. Yeah. And that was written by a playwright who was approached by Sorkin to just write an episode. He wrote that like, that's a good episode. It's not an episode of The West Wing, but it yeah. is a good episode. Yeah. Like It feels like an utterly different show. But uh, a lot of people hate that, I think, for that very reason. But I, I don't mind it. No, I don't mind that one. Yeah. Uh, any others, Terry, or was that your lot? And the entire final season of Buffy. <laughs> wow. You hate every episode of the final season. It just like, do you know what? That is a perfect example of you should have stopped a whole season ago. No, yeah. hated it. The potential slayers did have no potential. I'll grant you that. Uh, I will say, well, I mean, I've just watched the newsroom. I've got to be honest with you. The last two episodes of the newsroom, which are Oh Shenandoah and What Kind of Day Has It Been, are both horrific. <laughs> uh, oh Shenandoah is the one where... where um, uh, Will McAvoy is in spoilers for the newsroom. If you're watching along to it, something happens. He is. I won't. I won't say exactly. No, he is somewhere, and something happens, and he talks to someone. There you go. That's helpful, isn't it? That's all I can say with not spoiling the newsroom. Suffice to say, it's a terrible episode. But there's a B plot in which uh, in which Don mansplains someone's sexual assault to them, and that is, I think, a nadir for that show. And then the final episode is is just dreadful as well. So those two, I think, are the ones for the newsroom for Battlestar Galactica. I would say. Black Market is one of the worst ones, which is when Leah Dahmer tries to unpick this Black Market ring on one of the ships. It's got Bill Duke in it, though. Um, but it, it's not good. And it was because the idea, when when Ron Moore kind of pitched Battlestar Galactica to sci-fi initially, when he pitched the show, he said, like, we're going to do it kind of Hill Street Blues style. So there's going to be an A plot, which is going to be your procedural standalone. It'll be resolved at the end of the episode. There'll be a B plot, which is going to be maybe a few 
few character arcs and it'll be interactions between the characters uh so you know some themes will spread over and then there'll be a c plot which is the ongoing arc for the whole season slash the whole show and they like that idea but the way he managed to sell them on this because sci-fi at the time really liked procedural type things um he said well you know we'll have different shows like one episode will be on the hospital ship and it'd be like a hospital drama another one might be on the prison ship and it'd be like a prison drama so he'd have all sorts of different things going on in different ships in the fleet obviously all that went out the window when he actually made the show but this one i think is the closest it gets to that format where lee goes to the ship and he's trying to to solve all this black market and find out who's behind it all and and it all gets into people traffic and whatnot i mean it's it's not a good episode i'll say another terrible one is the woman king which is one where Hilo is investigating a dodgy doctor in the cargo hold who's killing sagittarian refugees that's that's not good either uh, and there's one where Tyrrell and Callie are stuck in an airlock and Adama's mooning over his dead wife uh, a day in the life. That's also a bad episode. I think those are probably my least favourite. Uh, and since I am embarking on a Game of Thrones rewatch, Boyd, I will say I enjoy every single episode of Game of Thrones. I even enjoy most of the final season. But I'll tell you this, <laughs> when I get to the episode, The Bells, or The Bell End, as I like to call it, I shall be thinking of you and hating every minute of it, and that is it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm never going to rewatch it, but, you know, I just, you know, yeah. <laughs> Enjoy yes. the pace. Our, our, our row over, over the bells yeah, <laughs> is, it will go it down was in infamy. Up to that. It was all leading up to that. Don't worry. Um, Except it wasn't. Fair enough. Uh, I'm going to pick episode of Lost, uh, series, season three, episode nine, Stranger in a Strange Land, which was the episode uh, in which Jack explains his tattoos. And um, famously, it goes nowhere apart from that. And that's the whole point of the episode. It was incredibly self-indulgent. And Damon Lindelof, to give him credit, I found this interview with him <laughs> where he talks about it. And he says, um, more importantly, Stranger in a Strange Lad, that, uni- that episode, which universally is considered the worst episode we ever produced. <laughs> Had it not been produced, we would not have been able to convince the network that the future of the show is how Jack got his tattoos. Everything we've been saying for two years about what's to come is now here all on screen. You argue that an hour of Matthew Fox in emotionally based conflict, no matter what the flashback story is, is fine. But we're now doing his ninth flashback story and no one cares. And so basically it was so awful that the network wanted us to carry on and on and on because it was such a massive hit. And they were like, no, we have to finish it. We have to establish the endpoint." And the network agreed because of that terrible, terrible episode. So... That was season three, yeah, season wasn't it? It went on for a while yeah. after that. Three more seasons, six seasons in all. Yeah, yeah. But um, because famously, I went on set of, of of Lost in season one in Hawaii, and met yes. Damon Lindelof, <laughs> and he assured us that he had the ending in mind. And we were like, by this point in season three, we were like, really, really? Because this is a load of old shit. Then, um, then as for my favourite shows, Frasier, which as as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I watch every morning on Channel Four uh, before I start work. This very week. They had some of the worst episodes, and they're all built around the time where poor Daphne, his character, gets overweight because Jane Leaves, the actress, was pregnant, and the moronic male producers of the show decided, oh, wouldn't it be funny if she gets overweight and everyone goes on about it and fat shames her constantly for about 10 episodes? It is horrendous. It's so (laughs) awful. And it all kind of comes to a head. There's an episode called Freudian Sleep, which is terrible anyway, where... Frasier has all these dreams and nightmares that are surreal and like dropping babies. It's awful. It's terrible. But she also dreams that she balloons and literally becomes this balloon woman. And it is excruciating to watch. So that's the worst episode of Frasier is Freudian sleep. And and as for Seinfeld, there are some bad episodes of Seinfeld. Series two, the last episode of season two, 
because Seinfeld and Elaine were the whole idea about them when they're introduced in season one is they were exes they'd had a thing together but now they've split and that was you know that was a good way of establishing those characters in in the last episode of season two they kind of get back together and they establish the rules and it's awful it's terrible because it's like a little rom-com and it's supposed to be it's all cute that they're establishing this way of getting back together uh, it's terrible absolutely terrible but also I have to say the finale famously the finale is a kind of a disaster and it's like a one joke thing um, where all these characters come back. Every kind of minor character that's ever been in the show comes back, which is an incredible feat, but it's such a one-joke, one-note thing, and it's all about unpleasant. <laughs> um, so that was a disaster, and I kind of agree it was a disaster. That was the first episode of Seinfeld oh, I ever no. saw, the final one. I watched it in a youth hostel in Australia, oh, God. in Byron Bay. Oh, my God. <laughs> having not slept for four days, wow. it, and that was what wow. I did. It was just pure fan service, but completely backfired because it just didn't work it was just it was just a bit unpleasant it had a brilliant beginning and an end which are just in the coffee shop but the whole stuff of bringing all, the whole cork in a cork case bringing them all back it was just terrible and i think larry david larry david has you know makes jokes about how bad it was within the context of kobe enthusiasm so i think he's always fully aware that everyone thinks it was shit <laughs> including i think the cast I think he may be the only person, because he wrote it, um, having left the show, who thinks it's still okay, but it really wasn't okay. It's difficult, isn't it? Like, finales are very, very hard to write, yeah. because the whole thing about it at that point is you're only writing it as a love letter to the fans, isn't it? Like, you're not trying to get in new viewers at that sure. point. It's just trying to make it sum everything up in a satisfying way that doesn't feel cheap. And that one... Yeah. And finally, that episode of um, Stranger Things, The Lost Sister. See, I was... Th no, I see... No. I, 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 I re no, I will not have it. I think that's actually a good episode. I just don't think... I think it, it breaks the pacing of that second series because... You've got yeah. the story ongoing, and then you take a day off to go on and out, and the whole episode yeah. just is tangential to the fact that these little demon dogs are running around the place, and she fucks off to go meeting up with the new mutants or whatever she's yeah. doing. Like it's it's slightly odd, but I quite Did liked really? it. I liked seeing that different aspect to Eleven. I liked seeing those other characters. I enjoyed it for what it was, but what I didn't like was it just put the whole story on pause, and yeah, that seems yeah. silly. But also, I thought that all that little gang of like <laughs> very unconvincing little kind of punky, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, no, I did, I, I didn't, I wasn't convinced by those people. Oh, Sorry, poor eleven. Mm. Well, that's some terrible episodes of some great shows for you. I hope, Stephen, that that has been informative. If you would like us to address your particular question, do feel free to DM it to at Pilot TV Pod or hurl it to me on social media at James C Dyer, and I will see about putting it in the show. <laughs> Let's move on now to the news. And the most perplexing news that came across my desk this week was that Now TV is no longer <laughs> Now TV, that Now TV is just Now, which, of course, tees up endless Abbott and Costello routines where it's going to be like, Boyd, when's Game of Thrones on? Uh, oh, it's on Now. It's on Now. No, it's on Now. Yeah, but when's it showing? It's on Now, etc., etc., etc. How did this seem like a good idea? It is a weird one, I have to say. I mean, as the representative for Now TV, yeah. Boyd, can you explain yeah. to us how yeah. you feel this is I was involved in the debate, but um, in the rebranding, it is weird. I have to agree. I think that all. Do you know what I think? That all, all the whole problem is Now TV is basically Sky's streaming offering. I mean, that's all it is. Yeah. It's just, it's, yeah. it, you know, mm. so. And the problem is they can't now call it Sky Plus, as in, you know, Disney Plus, Apple TV Plus, because there was a Sky Plus and that was its that was what it was called, basically, to start with. It's now Sky Q, the kind of the kind of peak of it is Sky Q. Yeah. <laughs> so but they can't just call it Sky Plus because that wouldn't work, because that's what it used to be anyway. So they came up with Now TV as being the completely as if no one's ever going to notice that it was part of it was Sky <laughs> streaming service. And I think also it was a way of you didn't have to sign up to Murdoch. You know, it, it was invented when 
Sky was still part of the Murdoch Empire and a huge mm. part of the Murdoch Empire. People genuinely would not sign up to Sky. People in Liverpool who didn't buy The Sun, for example, because of its Hillsborough coverage, refused to sign up to Sky because of Murdoch. Well, it's now not, he completely sold it. It's now not owned by Murdoch at all. People still have that association. So I still think Sky's reluctant, weirdly, to, to brand now as it's now known, as anything to do with Sky. So it's really irritating from in all kinds of ways because, you know, you get emails about content on Now TV. It's nothing to do with Sky. I'm like, yeah, I know this is going on Sky and they have different publicity departments and all of that. It's, yeah. it's first of all problems and everything, but it's weird. And now it's even weirder, yeah, because now you have to put Sky TV slash Now it's it's and there's of course a magazine yeah. called now or that maybe oh, i was that close no that's gone no, that's gone that's close. close okay um i should have known well, that I, i've always you see i've never considered it to be sky streaming service but of course it is but in my mm. head it's not in my head it's the cheap version of sky right. i pay like 20 some quid a month and have tons of sky channels so it's always just seems to me to be an amazing deal um but i've never considered it to be sky streaming mm-hmm. service yeah, just like a separate yeah. thing, like a completely yeah. well, that's, separate that's thing. Well, that's the intention of the marketing, so it's kind of worked from that point of view. But but it is it is utterly bizarre, yeah. and I get it. It's funny. I it, the Murdoch aspect of it hadn't crossed my mind because I'd always wondered why they they do have this weird sort of like they pretend it's nothing yeah. to do with Sky. It'd be like you do know that we know <laughs> that it's basically Sky streaming. Like why are we pretending it's not? Like this is it's a really really weird setup. Yeah. You know but, that we know that you we know. know. You know that we know that you know. Um, but the nomenclature you know. now is just is just deeply unnecessary. Like, like, it's like it's on now. What now? No, no, it's on now. It's like no. It's it's maybe it just confuses me, but I don't like it. And there we are. <laughs> You've made that. And it probably brilliant. cost about ten million pounds <laughs> for some marketing agency yeah. saying, you know what? Let's just cut the TV off. Job done. Here's your invoice. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good impression of a marketing person. Uh, <laughs> the branding yeah. meeting. Yeah. I mean, I've been to those yeah. meetings. So fair enough. More importantly, though. More excitingly, in my, my yes. I think there's quite a lot of news this week, but I'm excited there that is. Louis Theroux is going back to meet Tiger King. Have you heard about this? No. He is doing, because famously, no. Joe Exotic, a.k.a. Tiger King, a.k.a. Joseph Maldonado Passage, to give him his full name, um, was first on British TV in a Louis Theroux documentary called America's Most Dangerous Pets 10 years ago. And, you know, a few years before the Netflix series was made. And Louis Theroux is going back to revisit him, revisit his story. He's in jail, of course, now. He's in federal prison. Spoiler alert, Joe Exotic, Tiger King. But um, Louis Theroux is going to um, find out what he's been doing in prison and how he feels about the whole situation in a one-off feature-length documentary for BBC Two. And I cannot wait. Wow. I will not be watching that. Um, <laughs> uh, just, just throwing that out there. Uh, can I talk about something that might be awkward? Oh god, <laughs> that doesn't bode well. I got to be honest I mean, with you. It was a rhetorical question. You're going to. It was, wasn't it? It's yeah. not like, is there anything yeah. at this point either Boyd yeah. or I could say that would stop you saying whatever you're about to say? We're bracing ourselves. Yeah. No, you know what it is, Boyd. So um, there has been lots of line of duty chat this week because it is back on Sunday night. You know, we're all very excited. And there was a Jed Mercurio interview in GQ. Did you guys see this interview? Yes. Uh, only because you posted it into our WhatsApp group. <laughs> <laughs> James, that was a leading question. Don't, yeah. don't, don't leave the curtain, James. Um, so in this interview, he, was, um, he talked about calling a, a female writer for The Guardian um, was it a cunt? It was. Can, yes. I, say, can yes. I say cunt? I mean, you already podcast? have. You've said it. It's too late now. 
and this was uh, last year, year before, year before, I think. And um, she'd written a piece about, well, there was actually a big piece written on the biggest TV disappointments of, of 2019. And she'd written, Hannah Jane Davies, she'd written about uh, actually her love of Line of Duty, but how she felt that this one had particularly kind of not worked. And she, um, Jed kind of uh, challenged her, I suppose, is, <laughs> is how we describe it, it on, t- <laughs> on Twitter. But he he did call her a cunt. And there was a big kind of uh, set to other journalists were jumping in saying she's just doing her job. You've kind of caused a pile on. And he, was, he spoke about it in this interview with GQ and said, you know, I don't see why it's okay for journalists to participate in an article which is fundamentally sneering and not least have some insight into what a cunt she's being. And then he (laughs) goes on to say she's a piece of shit. Fuck her. And this obviously caused quite a lot of controversy because obviously people have a right to, creators have a right to respond to reviews, absolutely. But obviously a lot of people took exception to the language he used. And it's she's not the only person who's ever been called out by him, right? That would be fair to say. Oh, gotcha. In fact, it's interesting, just to contextualise it, yeah. So when you actually look at the article, this is the framing of the article, which I think is significant, right? So I've got the article here. Game. This is the headline. Killing Eve to Game of Thrones, colon, the biggest TV disappointments of 2019. Villanelle was too sadistic. The world of Westeros was too silly. And Line of Duty swerved disastrously off-piste. Here are the TV turkeys of the year. I'm just framing it, right? So that's what Gemma yeah. Curio read. And, and she, she, won't, she, won't, she yeah. obviously won't have written that deck. Of course. That deck so she then... That she then, the first entry is her entry on Line of Duty, just to say, carry on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and she does say, then just as it, quote, then just as it finally had the attention of the nation, Line of Duty went dramatically, catastrophically off piste. Um, and she talked, and it's literally two paragraphs, isn't yeah. it? About kind of why she thought this as somebody who'd been a fan. And I, I absolutely believe one of the great things about social media, it used to be that critics publish their review. That isn't even a review, but journalists publish writing, critics will publish a review. And obviously, there's no chance for any dialogue from the people that you're writing about. One of the things I think is is actually can be healthy about Twitter is that there's more of a dialogue around. Um, stuff. It's not kind of a one-way information dump, but I I think there still has to be a line. You can say I fundamentally disagree with this. This feels really unfair, and I think what he was objecting to was that it was deliberately positioned as a you know the biggest dis- TV disappointments. It's a arguably a reductive and a negative list. I don't. I'm not a great believer as a, a reader or an editor in worst of lists because i think there's so much great stuff in the world why just line line up to kick things but there has to be a line in terms of having a bit of humanity in the discourse you have with people my rule in life is don't go around calling people cunts oh no actually that isn't my <laughs> i was gonna say life. is it is it really Honor, i offer no, the pilot sure? tv podcast as exhibit <laughs> a in this particular <laughs> trial <laughs> Let me rephrase that. Like, I obviously, you know, I call you a cunt lovingly, James. Thank you. I suppose the point would be that somebody in his position should not be calling out individual journalists on Twitter and using language like that in all seriousness to do so, right? That's that's kind of 
That's not a particularly controversial stance from me. No, so oh, that said, Terry, I do have uh, an email here from the creator of the Winx Saga, who has a few choice words to be aimed at you. <laughs> All I'd say, so here, I'm. Are you joking? Yes, I'm joking. joking. <laughs> oh my God, that would be amazing if he wasn't. Yes, the creator of the Winx Saga, and I'd like to call Terry out for being a cunt we, about my fairies. Cuntgate. All I'd say about Cuntgate is, <laughs> as I'm calling it. So I do think so. Just, I'm trying to explain it more than excuse it, but I do think Jed, Jed Mercurio's mode of communication, he freely <laughs> uses the word cunt. So in Pilot TV, when I interviewed in Pilot TV for the previous series of Line of Duty, he talk, we talked about, um, and I'm quoting here, smug cunts don't actually say what their plot holes are. What they're, So he had a go at the plot hole police, right, as he referred to them in that interview, mm. and then went on to call other people cunts in the subsequent answer to the next question. So he freely... So I think generally, as far as Jim McHugh is concerned, he will, and I, I, I embrace the word generally. I, you know, I try not to use it to specific individual women. I don't think I would ever do that, but I do embrace it. So I think he fully embraces the word, and I think so. I think his defense would be he wasn't singling out this young female journalist and calling him a cunt out of context. He just calls everyone who gets on his nerves pretty much to that extent and inf infuriates him a cunt. And for good or ill. And it's interesting, I've got the thread up from when he when he had a go at her. So he's his yeah. so he what he's he it was on Christmas Eve, amazingly. And I and I totally agree with you, Terry. I think I think I think the article itself, well I looked I saw that article before he, anyone had a go, I was like, oh this is Guardian, often the Guardian does do this stuff. The Guardian can be fairly snide about stuff and go you know the whole they did a whole series of things which was just pointing out oh I, mean, I think it was a jumping the shark thing they did a whole strand a whole franchise mm, which yes, was slagging off it. good shows that in theory went bad and half the time they hadn't gone bad at all and that irritated me at the time so jeb mccurio said the biggest disappointment these jokers at the guardian really experienced in 2019 was when they realized what they do for a living which is quite a funny entry into the <laughs> i thought that was funny mark gatis interestingly went here here and then a lot of journalists kind of had entered into debate about can you call a 20-something journalist who's saying what well, a lot of critics thought, this is Michael Hans said that, a cunt. Hang on, hang on. on. A lot of critics thought that the most recent series of well, Line of Duty was somehow a massive jump well, the shark moment. Uh, uh, good point. I was about to say, I don't think that's true. Yeah, no, but someone said yeah, that. who? My, uh, who no. thought that? Well, uh, you know, another journalist. I don't want to name every single person in the thread. But yeah, I mean, again, I, I was like, no, it wasn't. It didn't go off piece at all. So it did feel unjust to me. And I think if you created this, you know, I don't know. I just think if you've created one of the greatest TV shows in history and, and you've done a perfectly good series and then it's being unbelievably snidely slagged off, I don't know. I kind of know where it's coming from, but I'm not saying I approve of calling a young 20-something female journalist a cunt. And to be fair, and, and it's seemingly she's off Twitter, by the way, since, and I don't think she's on Twitter anymore. Well, and, but, and I think the other thing that I would say is what he may not be aware of, but which all men who have a big following on social do need to be aware of, is that the shit we yeah, get as women, as female critics, is often a lot more severe than men. So if he'd have, and I'm sure he didn't call her out because she was a woman, but what he may not have realised is actually that will have prompted, you know, I've been subject to some awful shit yeah. on Twitter that James and I have spoken about, and it's like that wouldn't yeah. happen to a man if, if I was a male editor. I wouldn't get, I wouldn't get it in the same way that I do, and that's always the thing: is that sense of responsibility to not unleash yeah. the fucktards. And even though he probably didn't mean it as a gendered insult, it maybe came across that way. And given, as you say, the shit that women take, for example, Justice League, you only have to look at the three star reviews written by men have skated past every time a woman has said something negative about the Snyder. Cut, the Snyder bros have just jumped on them with this horrific 
horrific, misogynistic sort of tide of shit. So you're absolutely right. And I do think that's, you know, that is a genuine problem. I think kind of there are two bits to this. On the one hand, I kind of feel a little bit like you have to rise above the trolls and you just have to take it on the chin. You can't swing at every pitch that comes past. You've just got to let it go and just be above it all. Like he makes the best show on the BBC. I don't think he really needs to respond to criticism. I think his work speaks for himself. You know, it's easy for me to say, try not to let it bother you. But I kind of think you shouldn't necessarily feel the need to reply to it. On the other hand, and while I do think critics, given that we do this, we talk about whether or not we think shows are good. That is what we do. But I do I do have a, a certain hatred for that kind of type of journalism where it's pile-on journalism, where it's a takedown piece for the sake of it, where you are courting cheap clicks with controversy. It's a brilliant show. It was a brilliant series of a brilliant show. But I know if we say it's the worst thing of the year, we'll get a ton of clicks out of that. It feels, oh, that just makes me deeply weary. And I think when you don't like something as a critic, I always think when writing a review, the key to writing a negative review is to find the positive in that bad thing and make sure you try not not balance in a BBC sense, but make sure you try and find... Because every film, every show, no matter how bad, has got something, some redeeming quality to it. But it's it's very easy for the sake of laughs and fun to get carried away with being nasty about something just because it's enjoyable. And I'm not sure you necessarily yeah. do what it is you're reviewing a service by doing that. Although I think we have all been guilty of it at one time or another. And I don't think Hannah did this, by the way, but there is a school of critic, um, especially, I mean, I think probably more so in, in years gone by, who would go out of their way to write um, takedowns for exact for the kind of um, ego feed they get from it, for, as you say, for the kind of bigger visibility their, their writing gets, and who take great delight in it. And I think, you know, I, my philosophy has always been, this this is somebody's work. Yeah. This will have been somebody's life 10 hours a day for, for months, if not years. And to always remember when you're writing something that this is, you know, this is somebody's work and this is something that somebody at some point thought or hoped would be amazing and not to take delight in pulling something apart because there's just a kind of a lack of humanity yeah in that really um, and that's what gives criticism generally a bad name yeah. um there's a prize and we're all there, guilty of there's it sometimes a prize, right for every year for the funniest takedown piece of criticism right and i think you know and 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 you know, i remember one year the reason i remember one year was given to morrissey for his autobiography right now i'm sorry but i what i now morrissey's politics now are beyond the pale and i can't stand him and i can't and i will not go and see him live etc but i'm a huge but morrissey's autobiography was a really really good book and it was like taken down by some poncy critic on the sunday times or whatever and it was he was given a prize whoever wrote that for because it was so brilliantly lacerating you know and that whole idea and i i have to say you know i'm not there are critics in the sunday times you write about tv in other you know yes. in other yes. places that don't aren't fans of television seemingly TV, yeah it's yeah. a particular thing with tv critics so there's been a tradition in tabloids going back to you know like the ali ross ali ross is a really funny writer don't get me wrong but you know in the sun who basically would do a page slagging off every single program on tv you know <laughs> and that was a tradition and it's like well Compare it to film criticism, where I don't think, you know, it's thankfully it's rarer to get people just delighting in slagging stuff off for the sake of it. It's always been a weird element of TV. And I have to say, this it's interesting that you brought it up because this has brought out, in defence of one female journalist, and again, forgetting that for one second, but I've seen lots of critics, TV critics, 
pontificating about how embarrassing it is that Gemma Curio responded at all to criticism of his work. And I don't agree with that. I think he's fully entitled to engage about criticism of his work. I find it quite refreshing. I found it refreshing when Kevin Smith did it with one of his films and slagged off loads of jokes for a terrible film that he made. It's, I think it's funny and entertaining. Girl, wasn't it? You know, it doesn't bother me at all. I think it's interesting, you know. Um, so... It, it, I, and, I, and I do think if you're going to write, obviously take delight in taking stuff down in a piece of criticism, then you have to respond to it. But in this particular case, that does not excuse what happened to the, 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 the woman who wrote that piece. I mean, Boyd, I have to be honest, I get so exhausted on this podcast by just hearing your endless negativity about everything, slagging off every show, you hate yeah. everything that comes on. I mean, you really are part of the problem. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it is a, it's, a, it's an interesting phenomenon, I have to say. Yes. Mm. Yes, it is. <laughs> Right, we may have got sidetracked there. What else is happening in news? Kingsley Benadir has joined Secret Invasion. Do you know what I enjoy? I enjoy discursive, actual news vibes, what's happening in the world. And then James enjoys reading out the press release on Empire Online. Hang on, hang on. So you are now throwing shade at Kingsley Benadir. This is what's happening now. I am shocked and appalled. Carry on. I was just enjoying your very awkward. Yeah, that was a brilliant transition. Yeah, yeah. Because I was going to bring up another topic of debate before that. Yeah. Fine. All right. Fuck it. Fuck Kingsley Benadire. Fuck the fact that he's going to be in Secret Invasion. Nobody cares. It's all just a load of scrolls anyway. Fine. Boy, tell me your more interesting news. I was brilliantly going. I was going to say because when Terry brought that topic up, I I was also I was going to bring up the even more um, scary topic. Of this, there's been a lot of debate this week about the effect that TV violence towards women has. On, oh. and, and I, so, but all I, what I wanted to say, particularly regarding Line of Duty, is there was I considered to be a bizarre article in the Guardian about the link, which made a lot of interesting points about you know should we have so many um, incidents of violence against women in, on television and film, particularly on television, talking about how there's a relentless amount of stuff on TV that begins with the dead, naked corpse of a woman. Yeah, but yeah. It, but Line of Duty was was the one of the examples one of the main examples oh. i know it was it Where? was honestly it was weird and bizarre that line of duty was and it's just not one of those shows so what because of gina mcgee yeah like, basically they'd watched the first series you know and and that's ridiculous I know, it's ridiculous so i just wanted to say that i thought that was ridiculous because the f- people talked about the fall yeah. right particularly because also because uh jamie dornan had told that unfortunate anecdote in an interview where he said he basically stalked a woman in London when he was preparing yeah. for the role. Yeah. He, he, he basically said he decided to get off the tube when she got off and followed her home and she looked scared and yeah. how, um, yeah, and every, and that got reshared and people talked about the fall. And it's interesting because you, you know I watch a lot of crime shows, I watch a lot of thrillers, I watch a lot of procedurals and... It's actually made me think this week about this and about that whole formula. And it's interesting because the stuff I love the most. SVU. And the, the SVU, which me and a lot of women share. And I was talking to a couple of friends about it this week. And I think I've spoke about this before, but what we get out of SVU is, you know, the whole thing is based on the assault, rape and or murder of a woman or a girl. That is essentially the the basic premise of law and order. Um, And what you get out of it is the fact that there is a crime, there is an investigation, and then there is always, always, always justice. And I think, you know, what's been very clear over the last couple of weeks is the heinous statistics still for Uh violence against women. You know, 1.4% of all reported rapes are prosecuted. That's not convicted. 
that is prosecuted 1.4%, which means rape is decriminalised in this country. And when you see that statistic, it's very unlikely any woman who is raped will ever see any kind of justice. And what SVU does so brilliantly in each episode is the justice you never seem to get in life plays out on screen. And that's, I think I've talked before about the the one time that they didn't show the resolution and it ends with the jury member standing up and you don't find out whether that um, woman got justice or not. And there was a massive outcry. And that's because that's what we, there's a kind of a, a satisfaction you get out of it because you clearly see the police doing their job really well. You see the people being prosecuted more often than not. And Justice is usually given to that woman who has suffered. But psychologically, it makes perfect sense to me. But there is stuff like I loved The Fall. Mm, But that, you know, the the presentation of very attractive women being murdered in very gratuitous ways by a very handsome, I mean, it's it's kind of fucked up. And it's really, it has made me question my own Mm. viewing habits this Mm. week, I have to say, and why I like watching stuff like that as a woman who has suffered violence and has been in that place, why I'm then watching mm. that stuff on television and why as a country, and really it's a word because it's the same in America, why as, as viewers we do watch that and what does that do to our culture, it's, I suppose? It's comparative escapism though, isn't it? Like when people go for escapism, there's probably two reasons they do it. They do it for the way I do, where they go for escapism where it's a fantasy world which they can disappear into, which is nothing like the world they live in. Or the other form of escapism is the kind of reason that people watch shows about, you know, degradation and people living in misery. Basically, Terry, your entire watch list, which is you look at people with worse lives and comparative, you think, oh, I'm doing brilliantly because at least I'm not being, you know, murdered by cannibals or whatever it is that you're watching. And I wonder whether for this it, it adds that it's like it's it's so extreme and it's so bad that it enables you to compartmentalize the horror and put it in this kind of like fantasy box i find the trope of you know the woman being stalked by the serial killer like at this point quite i get a bit like demoralized whenever i see it now because it is now it is the grammar of almost every kind of crime show that it will be men killing women and be men abusing women in some way, shape or form. Like when we saw Big Sky and it started out quite interestingly and then those two girls yeah. get abducted and you're just like, oh, for fuck's sake, do we have to watch this? Uh, we reviewed The Little Things on the Empire podcast this week and again, it starts with a guy stalking woman. Like a woman is running with a man, they're jogging together and the man goes, I'll run you home. She goes, oh, don't worry, it's only two blocks. And you know, well, the second she says that, she's going to be raped and murdered because of course she is. And it's just like, I'm not sure how helpful it is to portray that as the norm in our society, to to portray it as so commonplace that we now take it for granted that that's going to happen in TV You see, shows. I think it's more complicated than that. And I think that I watched, I did, there was a debate on it, partly why, again, why I brought it up, why I wanted to bring it up um, in, in, the, in the news section was there was a debate on Newsnight. Well, in fact, it wasn't even a debate. They had a, a, an author on, a male author, complaining about all of this stuff, all of the, the idea that... that British the crime drama on TV particularly is built around uh, men stalking women. I don't, a, I don't mm. think that is very true anymore. Particularly, you know, there's shows like Unforgotten, which definitely, which which goes out of its way. Almost all the all the victims in Unforgotten are men rather than yeah. women. Well, the previous season wasn't. No, it? Yeah. It varies, but it varies. It's, but it's not. You know, it's not mm. it. And it's well, that was done brilliantly. Yes, it was. Exactly. It was. Now, that, this yes. is my point. When it's done brilliantly, and I agree with The Fool, I love The Fool as well, and I went to the last season launch of The Fool, I remember it so well. The Fool was written, created and written by Alan Cubitt, who's a very respected, very thoughtful writer. He wrote Prime Suspect 2, one of the greatest 
like feminist crime um, stories ever. Prime Suspect Two, which is better than Prime Suspect One, and if, if everyone's ever seen it, and he's brilliant. And he's he was making a very specific point with the fool. There's a reason why. Um, you know the, the the killer is handsome. That's that's the whole point of it. He's like you know, and then he, like the cliche of the dis- malformed, ugly killer. He was he was addressing that as a as a point. So and and yet on this thing on Newsnight, it was saying, oh, you know, it's like this handsome, glamorizing serial killing. I don't think it was glamorizing it at all. And it was a very, I thought it was a very glib point. And you get you have to get into the specifics. So you've got the fool, which I think is fully justified in in how that was written and made. And what about Happy Valley? Oh. Well, quickly, Happy Valley. Written by Sully Wainwright, that has another handsome rapist character in it, right? Mm. And she knows what the mm. fuck she's doing. I'm sorry. And are we really saying? Are are people complaining about this stuff? And ha- Happy Valley is all about him killing women. Are we really saying that, that she doesn't know what she's doing? That we shouldn't have that kind of show on TV? And that the the commissioner should go? No, no. I'm sorry. We've got too many shows. We're about men being violent about and raping women because that's a brilliant show one of the best shows of all time my point would be on um on the fall isn't about him being handsome because i think that does um start to deconstruct another kind mm. of trope but for me the problem with it actually is there is there is a pornification of those murder victims in that you know that some the, some of the way it's shot the very graphic detail how attractive they are, there is something vaguely titillating about the way that's done. And I think that's the uncomfortable thing about mm. the fall um, and and kind of how that can feed into certain fantasies and things like that. And I think, you know, without wanting to get into the problem of the pornification of our entire culture, which James and I often talk about, mm. um, how those fantasies start to play out in real life and kind of, I suppose, you know, how those things can um, be twisted in a psyche and all of that. I think there is a responsibility with program making of that nature, if it, especially if it is very graphic. But I didn't have any problem with him being handsome because it's ridiculous to think, you know, again, like, oh, so my, when I walk down the street, am I yeah, only yeah. meant to be scared of like the ugly men? Like that's, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 but to your point, James, it's not, while it's, you know, being abducted and murdered, for example, it's rare violence against women isn't rare at mm. all and but and it and i i think a lot of women like me are kind of questioning what we watch and why we watch it and kind of how that culture what can what can be the consequence of that culture i think it's a really interesting debate because the other thing you've got factored into all of that is how police are depicted on television right with yeah, yeah. all of the issues with policing over the last couple of years which is people have said those shows like svu which show incredibly kind of um positive depictions of policing that has the, the right outcome i suppose and then being engaged with the community in the right way of them being completely fair to people regardless yeah. of their race their gender their sexuality things that we know there are systemic issues in policing and that isn't represented on screen and what those depictions actually how they can be harmful as well yeah absolutely which, which meant why it, it was particularly weird that line of duty which is of course all about corrupt pillock dodgy yeah. police was yes. one of those shows um, foregrounded in the article. Anyway, sorry, I have mm. hijacked news again, James. But it was. No, it's- <laughs> but it has been such a topic this week, and I just yeah. don't think. My, yeah. I think it's absolutely. We should think about it. I just don't think. I've never seen any actual evidence that that one thing leads to another in this particular example. I think. Whereas I think attitudes to misogyny in general and how yeah. misogyny. Um, is inbred in men and toxic masculinity is a diff- is it has to be looked at yeah but I'm not sure if this thing I'm yeah. not sure if the fool and happy valley and you know whatever contribute to 
what has happened. You know, that's that's it's a question. I don't know, but I yeah, don't, you know. I, I'm not sure that it's you know causation as opposed to correlation, but I think it's symptomatic of of the fact that men harming women is just the the sort of the wallpaper of our society. There seems to be an accepted fact, and everywhere you look, that's what you see. Uh, and I just mm. wonder whether that's a particularly helpful narrative for us to constantly be drinking up in our leisure time. But you know, but I suppose, but there is a reality that is unspoken elsewhere about like statistically it's it's a horror show it's never been worse for women we're not we might not be stalked and murdered but we will pretty you know statistically most of us will suffer some form of harassment so 97 percent of women have been harassed a woman's killed every three days in this country mm. no rapes are prosecuted like it's a it's a pretty dark picture yeah it is incredible yeah. I have absolutely that's no a, idea that's how, a I, for me to end on. how I segue from that <laughs> to the fact that HBO is developing three more Game of Thrones prequels. But, back to uh, Kingsley Benedict. <laughs> yeah, back to Kingsley Benedict. Yeah. So Kingsley Benedict is going to be in uh, the Disney Plus series Secret Invasion, where he's going to play a bad Skrull. Okay. Well, there is a link to Killing Eve, the you know a series about yeah you know the interesting relationship between a female psychopath and um, the woman. Hunting her has been confirmed as it's that the fourth series will be its last series this week, and they're starting filming soon. And um, it's being exec produced this time. Showrunner this time is Laura Neal, who worked on Sex Education, following off from Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Emerald Fennell, and Susan Thicote. But I think it's interesting that they, they've realised it has to end. I think that's, that's yeah. Except they've they've realised it has to end, but then said that they are exploring expanding the Killing Eve universe with a number of spin-off ideas. It's just like is, is that something uh, we need? I, that I doesn't bother me because no, some of those characters are brilliant. I love that. I love some of the supporting characters. I think that's okay. Uh, that's not. I don't know. I mean, I didn't even watch. I didn't. Well, I did watch it. I didn't finish the last season of Killing Eve because it just it, it it lost me so I don't care <laughs> but what I do care about is the Game of Thrones prequels that they're apparently doing so there's another three being kicked around one is Nine Voyages which will focus on Corlys Valerion also known as the Sea Snake who was a, the greatest seafarer in the history of the Seven Kingdoms bit of excitement for you there uh, there's also something about uh, Princess Nymeria uh, from House Martell so it's going to be set sort of a thousand years before Game of Thrones in Dawn uh, and then another one about Flea Bottom, which is kind of like the oh you'll like this one, Terry. It's like you know uh, council estate drama in King's Landing. So this is uh, right up your alley. Um, yeah, so it's going to be it's going to be the slums of King's Landing dramatized for television. None of these have been greenlit yet. They're just kicking ideas around, and HBO haven't officially commented. But these are the rumours. Would anyone else like to share some more news? We should go through. We've been talking about news for ages, or what was hasn't been news, but let's let's breeze through the rest. If anyone wants to jump in, feel free. Tom Hiddleston and Claire Danes are doing the Essex Serpent for Apple TV Plus. Board, you look excited about this. I can tell yeah. by the smile on your yeah, face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just the idea of um, that there being a mythic creature called the Essex Serpent um, is, is based on a, <laughs> apparently a really good book, um, Sarah Perry's 2016 novel, which I haven't read, but I, I remember people thought it was brilliant. So yeah, I mean, Claire Danes, Tom Hiddleston, a Serpent in Essex. Can't go wrong. Can't go wrong with that. Uh, if you've been on Disney Plus recently, tell you, you'll notice that Gendy Tartakovsky's original Star Wars Clone Wars has appeared, which is pretty exciting. Not to be confused with the uh, Dave Filoni CG animated version. This is 2D cel-shaded animation which preceded it. They're very short episodes, but they're really, really good. Gendy Tartakovsky obviously being the guy behind Samurai Jack and a bunch of other things, but that's well worth watching. Uh, Timothy Oliphant may be returning to the role of Raylan Givens, obviously the main character from Justified, uh, but uh, Graham Yost is looking at adapting El 
Armour Leonard City Primeval, uh, which Raylan does appear in. So, uh, again, hasn't been inked. It's all in discussion stages at the moment. But I do like Raylan Givens and his hat. So that's good. Uh, Terry, your favourite TV show, Alan Tudyk's Resident Alien, has been renewed for a second season. I can't fucking understand why, but apparently it has. Knew it. God help us all. I personally believe it's my personal love for it. I think you are the only person that watches it, so maybe that's the reason why. Um, What else is happening, Boydie? Martin Compston, um, in fact, two Line of Duty stars, Martin Compston, of course, and the great Rochenda Sandal, um, who played Lisa McQueen in um, mm. in the last series, Series 5, and was brilliant, are joining the Amazon Prime series The Rig, which is also directed by John Strickland, who also directed a lot of the episodes of Line of Duty. So there's a huge Line of Duty crossover here. Um, it's set aboard the Kinloch Bravo oil rig off the Scottish coast in the North Sea, and I think there's this kind of supernatural element to it. Um, so I think that looks like quite an exciting project. And finally, um, finally from me, I mean, you could carry on talking, <laughs> reading news. Um, there's a, do you remember when we were talking about the Britney documentary? Um, well, I yes. think Terry and I were, you probably weren't. Um, but the, there's this whole thing about the conservatorship thing, right? And we were talking about how it doesn't exist in this country. It's such a complicated thing. And why is she still under this conservatorship thing? Well, journalist Mobin Azar is making a documentary review to about the whole conservatorship thing. And explaining it and fucking trying to get conservatorship. That's an extraordinary pronunciation. Absolutely. Conservatorship. Conservatorship. Conservatorship is what I'm saying from now yeah, on. That's great. Like sticking with conservatorship. <laughs> and it's and yeah, I think it's a really good idea because we need to get to the bottom of what that fucking thing is and how to pronounce it and, how, and what it is. Hashtag free Britney. Exactly. Do you see? Ridders, old Ridley Scott, off the back of Raised by Wolves. He and Stephen Knight are doing a World War II series for for HBO based on Sir Anthony Beaver's best-selling books. Stephen Knight's a busy man, isn't he? He is, I know. I mean, is it too much to ask <laughs> that he could just focus entirely on C? I mean, honestly. Have you seen that film? That film, the um, lockdown film, is, is uh, I think the only word for it is extraordinary. <laughs> Extraordinarily bad. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. Well, he's a yeah. really interesting guy, Stephen Knight, because he's written two of the worst films of recent years. And the greatest TV show of yeah. all time. So, you know, it works out yeah. quite well. <laughs> Peaky Blinders. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Uh, Natalie Portman has signed a first look TV deal with Apple. Lena Headey is returning to screens with Beacon 23, which is based on the books by self-publishing King Hugh Howey, uh, who wrote Wool. Um, and what else is there? Oh, yeah, A Time to Kill. Remember Time to Kill? It's its sequel, which I think John Grisham wrote relatively recently, uh, maybe being adapted with with um, Matthew McConaughey, uh, going to reprise the role that he played in the Time to Kill film. So that's, that's good news as well. And Dulé Hill, Charlie Young from the West Wing, has joined the Wonder Years reboot. Oh, wow. That's the last bit of news I've got for you. And I think that, having now rounded off news in brief, I think that is all of it. We should rename the news section the topical debate section uh, and totally change the, uh, the texture of that. I think that would be fun in future. All right, well, let's move on to, uh, to the reviews this week. And we begin this week with The Mighty Ducks, a revival show based on a series of films that I have somehow never seen, but that Terry assures me are... Good. Uh, this sees the return of Emilio Estevez as Gordon Bombay, the former Ducks coach and now washed-up manager of a rundown ice rink. However, he is thrust back into the spotlight when 12-year-old Evan and his mother, played by Lauren Graham, turn up determined to set up their own ice hockey team. So, Terry, even though I already know where this is going to go, Terry, mighty duck that you are, is this worth people's time or is it just shit Cobra Kai? Quack, 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 quack. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Um, right, let us cut to the chase. I had so much fun with the Mighty Ducks Game Changers. I am completely all in for it. And you know what? As evidenced by the new section, topical debate section we just did, it has been a rough couple of weeks. It's it been a rough couple of weeks generally, and it's been a rough couple of weeks to be a woman. So it may be that I was really, really in a place where I needed this and maybe not the thing we're going to be discussing soon. But there couldn't be two more different shows than Game Changers and the German horror we're going to discuss later. <laughs> this, <laughs> this, as you say, it's... And look, The Mighty Ducks, there were three films in the 90s. Mighty Ducks, I'm a big fan of. And then they were kind of diminishing returns. So by the time he got to number three, Emilio Estevez, who plays Gordon Bombay, the coach, as you said, he basically was almost like a guest star because he did a deal with Disney. I interviewed him for Empire to promote the show. And he told me that he basically agreed to Disney that he'd appear in the third one if they put out his own film that he was directing because he moved into directing. And he told me this amazing story about how, you know, um, Mighty Ducks 3 went on to to uh, rake in the money and his film, I think, got released in four theatres, one of which flooded. <laughs> so three theatres. Um, didn't quite work out the way he wanted, but that was kind of where he left his relationship with the Mighty Ducks. And there's been talk over the years about a potential fourth film or a potential TV series. And he said that kind of he wouldn't have considered it if it wasn't for the fact that they got Stephen Brill. Now, Stephen Brill wrote the film. It's all his idea. He is Mr. Mighty Duck. Um, and they basically got him back. Um, he is joined by Josh Goldsmith and Kathy Yusapa. Um, Kathy Yusapa, Brill's head writer, their showrunners. And the brilliant thing about Stephen Brill is the tone of Mighty Ducks, right? I The reason I love Mighty Ducks is because it has a sweetness and a sincerity and fuck the ice hockey. It's really that first film was about a boy who had no dad, who had a single mum, and it's it's about fathers and sons, and it's about the void in a little boy's life when he hasn't got a dad, and how that's filled by this sport and this team, but actually by this coach. And they've recaptured the spirit of the film, the really sweet, sincere. I'm really into the sincerity of the Mighty Ducks. So Emilio Estevez is back as Gordon Bombay, but he's also exec producing and he directed an episode. Obviously, he spent much of the last um, couple of decades making his own films in independent filmmaking. So this is kind of a bit of a step back into big title IP franchise land for him. And I mean, I just think he's puts in such a beautifully grouchy, grumpy, washed up, as you say, manager of this shit all of an ice rink. And here's the thing is, there is all of the tropes. There's the plucky single mum, there's the gang of misfits, and the gang of misfits are brilliant. Like a, a girl obsessed with fantasy who also carries nunchucks around with her. Um, the hardened, washed up coach. And they're all there. You can tick them off, tick, 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 tick. But it doesn't matter because it's just so lovely. And the basic premise is that um, a, a boy played by uh, Brady Noon, Evan, he gets kicked out of the Mighty Ducks and at the same time then gets kicked out of the popular gang at school because you're only in the popular gang because you're in the Mighty Ducks. And his mum, as you said, Lauren Graham, she's a single mum raising her by himself. She says, fuck them, we're going to start our own team. And the only people he can get to be in this team is this gang, ragtag gang from school. And... 
So she's amazing. Lauren Graham, brilliant comic timing. This is actually, I've got to say, and you're going to violently disagree with me, I found this really funny. So there is a line about having a podcast body that is one of the funniest lines I've heard on telly this year. Podcast body, it's just fucking genius. And let me say to you, there is a kid in this, and I do not say this lightly, Maxwell Simpkins, who is literally a tiny Chris Farley. I swear <laughs> to God, he I'm like obsessed with him. He puts in this amazing performance for a little kid. He's got like just this brilliant timing and delivery. And it is, it's been moved on. It isn't just a repeat because it's now got all of these references about, you know, horribly pushy parents who pay for a sporting psychologist to turn up at their son's like, just random hockey practice, not even a game. Um, it's all, you could tell there's loads of money now involved. So it feels like it's modern and has moved on. I watched uh, four episodes this morning. I had a lovely time. I've got so much love for this show and I can't recommend it enough. Please watch it. Yeah, I was, I have to say, I was, I have of all of I can't think of a show right we've reviewed in recent in, probably since the beginning of the podcast that I had less interest in than this one. So, <laughs> I think we talked about before how you when we talked about this as a as a news story coming up that um, you loved the films, the original films. I never never seen any of the films. Never, I think it's because I was in my early twenties, right when the first film came out. So it's almost like the worst age to be for a family oriented film to come out and to have any, cause you're going to, well, I'm not going to, there's no way I'm going to be even vaguely interested in anything that happens in that film. And so I've never seen it, never have no connection with the Mighty Ducks whatsoever. Just as being a thing that it's one of those things where it's just there at the edge of your consciousness as being a popular um, film franchise. So when it was announced, that I was like, no, no interest uh, at all. When we were, uh, the only interest was that you liked, was that you Terry liked this film and that you're excited about this thing. I have to say, I sat down to watch it, and, and this is like my biggest, I think, kind of conversion within about a minute or five minutes of starting a show, and I I absolutely loved it. I thought it was, and what I think was, it is really moving and sweet and sincere. It is funny. The the um, the little kids, so the kid you're talking about is the one who we first see commentating on the game with his mate, with his friend, and then does the podcast. There's a really funny scene after the after the mother, after Lauren Graham has made a, 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 a spectacle of herself, having a go at the obnoxious young hockey coach who is absolutely brilliantly obnoxious, who stands there going, we're not here to have fun. He literally says, we're not here to have fun, which is interesting about when you're, you're, you're gathering a group of kids, 12-year-olds, yeah. to play a sport. She has a massive go at him. It's filmed. It becomes, it goes viral. And the, her, uh, and the little kid, who you're talking about, who lives next door, they're on their porches and they're kind of chewing the fat. And he literally says, can I come over and get an exclusive podcast interview with you? It's funny. It's really funny about and incorporating things like podcasts and, and, and all of that into this world. It has something to say about, there is an issue about, you know, in this country about football and sports and the way kids are taught this stuff and it's too competitive and parents go crazy. And the way it addressed that was really funny in that scene. Lauren Graham is just brilliant in everything. I love her. She was brilliant in parenthood the, the spin-off mm. from the film. We, I don't know if we ever done the question of what the best TV spin-off of a film was, but Parenthood was up there and she was great in that. Obviously great in The Gilmore Girl. She's brilliant in this. I think the kids are really well cast, are really funny and engaging and not in any way annoying or irritating. And that's a hard thing to pull off. Um, and I think it's a testament that this project, right, that they've got Stephen Brill back to work on it. And and um, as you said, and talked about Emilio Estevez in your interview in Empire, and, and you talked about how this is one of the only characters, old, old characters you go back and do. But I think it's a testament to 
the way American television or just America, the American system works, that they've clearly got a brilliant team of um, writers in um, helping Stephen Brill mm. with this. And so there are gags in it, really smart gags all the way through. And it's re- the tone is really, really well honed. Um, it re- and it's got that like thing where the kids are, because are, are, little kids of that age are really, can be really harsh and cruel and, and, and really irritating. But it, it depicts them in such a funny way that it's not kind of scary or annoying. You kind of fully embrace it. I thought it was great. I really absolutely loved it. Yeah. And I will definitely watch more episodes than, um, I think they've done just an incredible job, and it shows that you know even this kind of project. Well, I mean, it is it is like um, Cobra Kai in that way that you know a project that is taking an old an old film and it's gonna and it's clearly there because it's gonna got it has an inbuilt um, fandom and it's you know it's kind of like you could you could dismiss it as being oh gratuitous you know use of an old thing a spin off of an old film, but actually. When you do it with love and attention and hard work and you get really good people in to write the scripts and really good people to play the roles, it ends up being really, really good. This is just a really good show. Is it those? Like, What's your fucking problem with it? To be fair, I mean, I come from the same sort of place that Boyd is. I have never seen a Mighty Duck. I have no affection for it or knowledge (laughs) of it. I'm completely oblivious to what I can only assume is a kid's show about hockey. Therefore, I have no interest. So I went into this, obviously, just not wanting anything to do with it and initially i was like oh i was a little bit like oh christ because it skews younger than cobra kai because the kids are younger you know so and and i found the jokes to be slightly more pitched at a younger audience Was cobra kai is one of these things where it's got teenagers in it but it is very much aimed at people of my age group who grew up with the karate kid films uh, and i think it does a good job of casting its net quite wide in terms of its demographic but also Cobra Kai has such good writing. It is so funny and it leans into its concepts so hard that I just love every second of it. And to be fair, I've watched one episode of this and I don't really feel I can judge it as a whole. But having watched this one episode, I did find, I thought the writing was functional. Uh, I didn't find it particularly funny. That podcast body joke I thought was weak. I was having, it was not funny. It was not funny. And all the way through this, I just felt this is very young kids being very young kids. And I'm just, I'm not a very young kid and I have no interest in them at all. Oh my God. Do you have any imagination? (laughs) No. And that said, all of that said, and I was, I was at one point just praying for this to end. I really was. And then, and then, and then. monster. And then Emilio Estevez turned up. And at that point, I was like, okay. I was like, okay, now we're sucking diesel. I was like, because he's good. And as you say, he's really grumpy and just irascible. And I really enjoyed him. And I thought he was great. And if for nothing other than him, because he's literally the only thing I liked about the show, I I almost want to see more of him being that character. Now, I don't know whether that's an evolution of the character he used to play, whether that's literally the character he used to play, because I've never seen a Mighty Duck. But I did find him compelling. And when he was on screen, I enjoyed him. and I, I, I found the humour around him that landed for me. Like he's eating a child's stale birthday cake and just the way he does it really offhandedly. I think his performance, his delivery is spot on. And I think there's proper humour aimed at actual grown-ups in that character. I just didn't find any elsewhere. So hang on, because you're not the literal mm-hmm. audience for this yeah. show, you have yeah. taken against it and you only like the bits that you feel are aimed at you. Yes, yes. that's. This is so much about your personality. <laughs> Oh my god! 
<laughs> well, okay, but what? Do, so what, you thought he was the only good thing in it? No, no. To be fair, he's the only thing that I enjoyed in it. Lauren Graham, you didn't hun- enjoy Lauren Graham. No, I actually didn't, and I got a lot of time God. for Lauren Graham, but I didn't think she was very what? good in this. I didn't think her dialogue had enough bite to it, and I just found it a bit like, oh God, yes, brilliant. This is a wonderful trope of the sort of mother trying to do the best for a child. There's a, there's a running gag about slicing your children's grapes, which let me tell you had me on the floor. Uh, but no, just 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 not there for that. But but I'm not the audience for this show. I, this 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 show is capitalising on an amount of nostalgia that I simply do not have. So I can't have it. That said, if I'd never seen Karate Kid, I'd still think Cobra Kai was great. So, you know, your mileage may vary. Well, you don't know that because you have seen it. So you're the only can judge it through the vantage point in which you exist. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This, your response to this says so much about yep. you. Couldn't give a mighty fuck. Anyway, uh, the Mighty Ducks game changes. <laughs> oh, you changes. just want to use that line. You can shoot it. As yeah, honestly. I used it last week. I'm just recycling jokes oh at this point. Uh, the Mighty Ducks game changes uh, is on Disney Plus from the 26th of March, and you can find it there. Quack, 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 quack. Oh, good God. <laughs> There are no ducks, but falcons in the next show, which is, of course, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which is also on Disney+. And this is the latest MCU series and the show that aims to fill the WandaVision-shaped hole in all our hearts. Uh, this one sees the return of Anthony Mackie as the winged Avenger and Sebastian Stan as the metal-armed Avenger in their continuing escapades post-Endgame uh, as they continue to do with the aftermath of, say, Captain America's departure and a new emerging terror group called The Flag Smashers. And frankly, do not even get me started on the semantic issues around that name. Anyway, Boyd, did this, I don't know, smash your flag or something? Mm. I mean, weak. <laughs> weak source. <laughs> you need, the Mighty Ducks are such you, you everything out of me. Mighty I don't know what to scriptwriters in uh, to help you. Um, uh, well, I think, I think the problem for this series for me is, having watched just this first episode, obviously, um, is that, is the WandaVision factor. So as everyone knows, as everyone I'm sure listening to this podcast knows, as every Marvel fan knows, as anyone even vaguely interested in this world knows, um, this was going to be the original MCU series that uh, debuted on Disney+, Plus. this big new era yep. of these of these shows that are very, very different from the Netflix Marvel um, shows, which were by and large boring and unhelpful and disappointing, <laughs> almost all of them in some way, shape or form. They were definitely all too long. This is the new era of the MCU TV Disney Plus world of, you know, slick, uh, brilliantly produced and made uh, spin-offs basically from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But we had WandaVision ended up coming first and WandaVision was so incredibly bold and inventive and weird and different and spectacularly um, original. That we then you then sit down to watch the first episode of this series, and it feels incredibly generic and formulaic. I think, to me, anyway, in comparison. So I ha- and that's you know that's just like that's just a factor of what's happened in the history of this these shows. So it's a bit unfortunate in a way. Imagine if this had come first, you'd be like, oh, this is a beautifully made cinematic TV series using all of the skills that Marvel has, really. Because it is brilliantly made. It opens with this incredible set-piece action sequence aboard a plane, um, and that you know, and that's really well-filmed and really, really exciting. And most of it is generally beautifully made and filmed, and it's, all, it's shot in scope, aspect ratio, blah, 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 blah. And um, I like the characters. But there is, this opening episode is setting everything up. So, but the problem with the opening episode, because it's setting everything up, you, you don't get any actual Winter Soldier... Um, Falcon together you don't get them bouncing off each other which having read the feature in the cover feature in Empire Magazine is going to be a big factor of the show and that that interrelationship and that 
banter that's going to happen, I'm sure, will be great because Marvel can do banter brilliantly. They've proven that, you know, above and beyond as much as anything else they've done. So you don't get any of that yet. This is setting that up. And you don't actually get into the, the last scene. If, I won't spoil it, anyone else to see is clearly setting up where Wyatt Russell comes in, is clearly setting up the racism issue, which is, and it's, and I'm excited about the fact that it's going to head on deal with the, you know, the issue of um, Anthony Mackie's character of Sam Wilson being the next captain and how the fact that he's denied that he decides not to go with that and then they give it to this blonde blue-eyed uh, Wyatt Russell figure um, that's going to be interesting but again they're just setting that up in the first episode but again from what I've read in the in, in the Empire feature that's I'm fascinated by that they're addressing that head-on and the idea of a black superhero and the fact that he's going to be denied that and why and why they go with the white Russell's character. That sounds fascinating as well. But there was so much stuff in this opening episode that felt a bit blah to me. Like there's a whole subplot about the, the a bank sister and financial troubles. It's like, <laughs> what's, I don't know, I'm just vaguely interested in that at all. And there were moments that were sweet and nice. And there was, I thought there was a quite an interesting scene with um, Sebastian Stan and his shrink. Um, there was kind of like something from The Sopranos. That was like my favourite scene, actually, and that whole idea of him going to a shriek and dealing with his issues and having to go back and apologise for things that he's done and make amends for things that he's done in his past was interesting. But I just felt... But to be fair to it, it's setting stuff up. It was was perfectly well made. It looks like a Marvel film, which I think is probably what you want from, from a TV show in this universe. I will, of course, carry on watching it, and I'm excited about what's to come. But in this opening episode, I was—I dis- have to say I was disappointed, mainly because it didn't feel particularly special. But I'm sure the special stuff will come. Yeah, I know I know what you mean. It does feel like the big set piece in the show is an interview for a small business loan, and I'm saying that's never <laughs> a great look no. for the opening. My, my issue with this is not with the show, it's with Disney, and it's that they made one episode of this available to critics, one. They made two episodes of WandaVision yeah. available to critics, and I would argue they should have made three because it wasn't until the third episode of WandaVision that you knew what the show was. Reviewing this show based off this one episode, especially given this is a six-episode, single-story, limited series, feels like reviewing a film based on the first five minutes like it's all set up yes there's an action series front loaded and they do do that thing where all the money is on the screen and it's like here is an action sequence the likes of which none of you fuckers on the other channels can afford look at us go big screen mcu on the small screen and it works the problem with that action sequence is there are no emotional stakes to it whatsoever because it happens Mm. at the very beginning of the show so it's all a little bit cg 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 boom cg cg boom it looks impressive it's quite fun it's well choreographed but I mean, I was a little disinterested in it because there were no stakes for me at that point. When you get into it, I think we do see what they're obviously trying to do here, which which they did so well in WandaVision. They gave the characters of Wanda Maximoff and Vision an inner life. They made they took those two bit players, those two supporting characters from the MCU, and made them arguably the two characters we now most care about and most understand and most know the emotional side of you know more so than any of the other characters in the series because we spend so much time with them in Wanda's head and i think with this they're they're clearly doing an element of that so you're seeing uh, you're seeing Falcon's home life. You're seeing what he's like with his sister, you know, the the boat and the business that they've inherited from their parents. Whether you care about that is a whole other thing, but but you're seeing more of who he is when he doesn't have his wings on. Same with, uh, with Bucky Barnes. He's a really interesting character. He's a man out of time. He's a hundred odd years old. You know, he spent years as a brainwashed Soviet assassin. Like there's a lot of baggage there to unpack and I want to know more about his inner life. That said, what I don't want to do is see him going on random awkward dates and have having lunch at a sushi restaurant like that for me is not great television and this 
this was a weird episode for me because on the one hand you have huge production values but on the other hand it feels like a kind of slightly rambling episode of like a procedural network tv show because it's just people not doing particularly interesting everyday things and i get that that shows us a side to these characters we've never seen before but if we're going to see that side to them i'd like to see a more interesting side of it i'm not interested in seeing how difficult it is for the falcon <laughs> to get the bank manager to agree to sign off alone like that's not really doing it for me and as you say we don't get to see those two characters together and i think their banter is going to be the linchpin of this show and we get absolutely none of that here all we do is really sort of say lay the groundwork for the flag smashers which in and of themselves so far is, are not impressive so I'm in the same situation with this where I was in with WandaVision, where when I watched the first two, I was like, I am not enjoying this because I don't really enjoy a, you know, 50 set period sitcom, but I suspect the show will be brilliant. Now I've seen the whole thing. I think it's a five star show. I think it's a masterpiece. Mm. Do I think this will be a masterpiece? No, but I do think I'll enjoy it and I do think it will be a good show. I just think there's not a lot of evidence for that at this stage. If we'd seen the first two, if we'd seen the first three, I think we'd say, do you know what? This is a six-hour MCU movie. It moves at a much slower pace, but it's got great highs. We've got emotional depth. We've got great action. And I suspect that's in store for us. But at this point, all I can say is it's good and it has potential, but it isn't great. Here endeth the lecture. Terry's eating a cupcake. She is. She's eating a cupcake. I've do, you, do you have anything to share? I mean, about the cupcake. Fine, you know, whatever you like. Uh, the cupcake was nice. Uh, I mean, it was fine. So, does I mean, there is very little more to add. It's incredibly disappointing after Wonder Vision, which feels radical, absolutely radical. And I think it's really hard to divorce this show from that sense, which is that that broke so many boundaries did so many interesting exciting things and this feels very i suppose functional and a bit prosaic mm. um quite unexciting that set it's almost like the opening set piece which is a remarkable set piece especially for telly i know it's kind of the the theory is that this is whichever screen it's made for that it's all exactly the same quality that opening set piece is remarkable, but it's almost kind of like they said, oh, well, we've ticked that box now and then we're just going to... And then the rest of the episode is just flat. And it, I think it's... I couldn't agree with you more, James. I think it's absolutely nuts to just give people this one episode because it does feel harsh to judge it on it because, as you say, there's like loads of stuff in a sushi bar and there's <laughs> loads of stuff in a bank. Um, and I agree with Boyd that, the most interesting part was that kind of therapy session and that sense of guilt for, you know, slaughtering people uh, for 70 odd years. Um, that that kind of started to get into interesting narrative ground for me and tonal ground. But I mean, you know, all we've heard about is this Lethal Weapon-esque buddy movie banter, which there, as you say, absolutely fucking zero of. So it was, it's, presumably going to be slow burning which is obviously not that surprising maybe but i just feel like some more stuff should have been front loaded um if you think about where we left this world and and how the massive swirling emotions after endgame um and this as a re-entry is very very muted and i'm sure we'll talk about it in four weeks and we'll be having a very different conversation mm. but the reality is that if if it is going to be episodic like this, they have to stand alone as having a certain amount of quality and dynamism because 
you can't expect everybody to watch them all together. You know, people are going to have to get through this episode to mm. want to get to the next one. Um, I just think it was it felt disappointing um, to me, and I'm I'm obviously going to continue watch it because I have to. But if I was just a viewer and not and didn't have to professionally, I can't say that I'd feel compelled. Um, See, that's interesting. That's shame. interesting. See, I would definitely watch more of this, mainly because I'm I'm a hundred percent convinced this is going to be a great show. I don't think it'll be a five star show necessarily, but I do think it will be great. But it's just I just don't see that from what what we got. And as we've said, I think Disney are in, maybe Disney are just confident in the fact that people are going to watch it anyway, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, I'm but sure I do that's feel true, yeah. that critics are going to be like, well, I mean, I haven't I haven't looked at the reviews. I don't know what they're actually looking like. It's I'm, been you know, very muted. It's been very muted. And right. But the thing is, it felt this. The biggest disappointment with me, for me, was there were moments it felt like television, and mm. um, and I I know I sound like I'm using it in the pejorative, well, because basically I am. But <laughs> I suppose the traditional view of television, and I just I can't imagine. There's whole chunks of this that I couldn't imagine seeing on the big screen. It would never have got that far. Um, and there are moments when you know you are watching them in a TV show, mm. and that for me is what shouldn't. Yeah, it's happen. like they, that isn't how I ever yeah. felt with the Mandalorian, for example. Right. It's like they, they they front loaded so much into that opening action sequence, as you say, we didn't even have an emotional connection to that. That was so spectacular and cinematic that then, as soon as they then arrive on dry land, so to speak, they kind of forget. It's almost like, and it becomes incredibly prosaic filmmaking. A lot of it, like, yeah, it, it was weird from that point of view. And I think not only, I think not only the issue of them only sending out one episode to to us, you know, which which is, enough, but I actually think it's weird because this is not. There's only six episodes, right? And this was like what yeah. 50, 50 minutes. Mm. Like they yeah. could they could have cut easily cut out stuff for yeah. that and and made it. For me, the, the issue is, as soon as that first episode of WandaVision finished, you were desperate to see the next. And as soon as the first episode of The Mandalorian yeah. finished, you were desperate. I am not desperate. They have not, they have not, and I don't think any viewer will feel that level of excitement that those other shows had. So, and that's a failure of this first episode, no matter how many we get sent. You know, there's plenty of time to make us want, yeah. desperately want to watch, keep, keep watching, and they did not achieve that. Yeah. Well, we will keep you updated on our feelings about the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. If you want to hear us <laughs> explain our indifference to it in <laughs> forensic detail, then the spoiler special for the first episode <laughs> of the Falcon and the Winter Soldier is available on the Empire Spoiler Special channel. For a mere £2.99 a month, do go and sign up for that. EmpireOnline.com slash spoiler specials. I think you'll agree we've done an excellent job of selling that on this so podcast. you will be singing the Marvel <laughs> anthem together, won't you? So that'll be worth yeah, it. Yeah, we will. Yeah, I yeah. mean, tune in just to hear us sing the Melville well, anthem. and honestly... That was the most thrilling bit of the episode for me. Like, yeah. Not, not, and I'm not even being rude. It still, still gives, makes my heart beat faster. Um, so maybe I should have just watched that for 58 uh, minutes. You've not heard the fanfare until you've heard it on kazoo uh that's available on disney plus now and finally this week we have hausen uh, a nightmare fever dream of a show that sees 16 year old yuri and his father yashik move to an apartment block where yashik is taking over as the building manager now let's make it very clear what you're getting into here so this is a weird bleak demented horror series in german and features neighbors that wouldn't look out of place in the judge dread comic sentient black sludge and Oh some, my god, why don't you just do the review? Some serious fire code violations. <laughs> Feel good fun. 
for all the family. This is not. So, of course, who better to tell us about it than Terry, the Grim Reaper Vice? Terry, is this good? Thanks, James. Let me mention the, you know, three words you haven't said about this show. So, this. Oh, God. I can't, and, and let me tell you, this, this week is a mixed bag from Mighty Duck, quack, 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 to fucking German expressionist nightmare hellscape of a show um which by the way i had to check because i couldn't believe it was 58 minutes because i felt like i've been watching it for seven hours it's the longest 58 minutes of my life so this is a a sky original it debuted on sky deutschland at halloween now when i've read the sky press release for this it calls it a haunted house series which is the biggest understatement of a series so i'm like did we watch the same fucking programme? That's your marketing, a haunted house series. Um, directed by Thomas Stuber, who actually doesn't have a horror background, probably most well-known for In the Isles, which was the workplace drama with uh, Sandra Huller. Um, so he hasn't got any experience in horror. And this is part horror, part mystery, they say, part thriller. Let me just say, it's the single most oppressive piece of television I've ever watched and I appreciated it but I didn't enjoy a single fucking moment of it it's the grimmest experience television watching experience of my entire life so <laughs> just to get the personnel out of the way Till Kleinhart and, and Anastasia we should say are the writers and showrunners um, so as you say this this opens, you've got the car pulling up to a building with a new manager, Jasek, 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 um, played by Charlie Hubner, uh, his 16-year-old son, Yuri, played by Tristan Gubel. They're moving there after his mum died. Now, the building is basically, it looks partly like a hospital, partly like a prison. It is the darkest bleakest place you've ever been inside it's full of junkies and thieves there's a horrible subplot with a baby um that had me like wanting to throw myself out of the window um and there's a sense that basically the house have a life of its own it's possessed in some way it's feeding on the misery of the dregs of society who live there um and let me get into the way it looks because it's extraordinary it looks like all i can say is it looks like a painting if that makes any sense it's like edward hopper by way of german expressionism um and you know and and i was reading about how actually since the 1920s expressionist period horror hasn't really been part of german cinema that much or and definitely not german tv but the way this is, I mean, the cin- the production design, the cinematography, the lighting, the sound design, it was shot in a former um, East German hospital, which makes total sense. And it had been abandoned, apparently, for more than two decades. The way it is shot, I, I honestly, it's like completely dark and black, apart from there'll be like a single bare light bulb or there'll be a small strip light or a neon outline. There's barely any light in any of the scenes at all. Um, and there's this, the score, the soundscape is gr- is this like groaning, pulsating, high-pitched noise. Hmm. 
But it's not, you know, it's it sounds grim and like it could be like a kitchen sink drama. It is not. There's like levitating. There's these like abstract weird shots. There's black goo leaking out of a fucking radiator. It is unrelentingly miserable and grim and awful. And I am never... And I watched it twice. Why? <laughs> What's wrong with you? Classic because, Terry. Because... <laughs> I wanted to be thorough. And I thought I watched it last night and I thought and I'd had two glasses of wine and oh, I thought well, maybe like because I had two glasses of wine, maybe that's why I had such a strong reaction. So I watched it at half five this morning oh, and no, I still felt the same. This is so do you know what? Brilliantly for what they must have been going for, the way they captured it in the production in the production design, but also um, whoever the DOP is on this is must be a fucking psychopath. But the way they created this, I just think is is remarkable. But it is not enjoyable in any way, shape, or form. I think this is there six episodes. I cannot even imagine sitting through another <laughs> six minutes. Never mind another like fucking six hours or whatever. It's just deeply, 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 deeply <laughs> oppressive. And like, I felt like I was suffocating when I was watching it. Imagine being locked in a coffin, buried alive, and somebody like turning on the radio and the radio was just going, Yee! that's what watching this is like. I have to... um Draw, unveil the the, uh, the the process behind this choice because basically it was a choice this week between this show, House and, and Invincible, which is the um, Amazon Prime animated, brightly coloured, fun yeah. animated show about superheroes and shit. And we were like, and I was like, no, we've got to do the German. We've got to do the German psychodrama on Sky. And I have to say, I'm slightly regretting it because... <laughs> <laughs> um, I too. Uh, basically, it's kind of is. It's it's David Lynch, isn't it? I mean, it, it's very Eraserhead yeah. the movie, and I love Eraserhead by the way. But it's not a film that I go back and rewatch very often, even though I'm a big David Lynch fan, because Eraserhead is incredibly oppressive and miserable and difficult. But this is like this, this is, is way, way worse, worse, right? Exactly, it is way worse because the production design is incredible, and the and the and the and the, uh, the sequences where the camera swoops around this unbelievably bleak um building as you say just calling it a haunted house is such a same this spectacular multi-level densely packed mm. housing mm. thing when the, the shots of that are just incredible they reminded me of there's an awesome world's film of, of the trial the kafka thing which is very again very 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 traumatic mm. to watch but it, so it's got that influence on it it's so dark as you say it's got this black loop this back black stuff that <laughs> oozes from the building and gets all over the poor new caretaker jashek is horrible it's such a grim nasty thing then you've got the baby at elam as you say which is just oh okay so you're gonna have a, a, a baby looked after by a drug addicted little shit who wants to party with this other group of shits of like weird freaky creepy people with a with a fire burning in the thing i have to say the scene where the where the no, I'm trying not to wait to spoil it. The scene where the where that is where 
yeah. The woman. Oh my god, it's painful. Yeah. But the, then the scene where the caretaker disperses this party in quotes, where they're playing burning down the house by talking heads brilliantly. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. That was a really odd brilliant, choice. Uh, brilliant choice though, because you think actually that that they play they use it in such a way that even that is like really grim, even that's a brilliant song. Um, yeah. It's if they you know clearly the whole point is to make this as grim and bleak as possible, and they have boy have they succeeded. But I cannot carry on watching. Even not, I have a very no. I have almost no thresholds that I can watch anything. It can you know those horrible grotesque torture porn horror films. I can cope with you know ultra violent uh, films about you know disgusting disgusting serial killers. But this it was so painful that even I am like I don't, I'm not sure if I can carry on watching it. Oh my god! Yes, um, God, where to begin? Yeah, this was this was this was something else. I mean, I did wonder whether Terry might absolutely love it because it was the most unrelentingly miserable thing I'd ever experienced, and so it did feel like it might have been up your alley, Terry, just for that reason alone. <laughs> but it is just so oppressive. But it looks beautiful, like it's gloriously shot. So I was just thought, on the one hand, I was like the production values, I am all here for this, but. I just, no, I don't need this in my life. It is an hour of weird sort of bleak German nihilism with potential supernatural undertones. But even if you take out the supernatural, tone, it's just people being awful to each other. And no, it's, it's, I can, I can say with absolute honesty, I had less fun with this than I did with the Mighty Ducks. So, uh, yeah. well, that's something. But should you feel the need to dive headfirst into a tenement of misery with uh, a burning down the house soundtrack and uh, some German language fun, then by all means do watch Hausen, uh, which turns up on Sky Atlantic on the 26th of March at 9pm. Also out this week is the colourful animated series Invincible from the creator of The Walking Dead, which we should have fucking watched instead. But hey-ho, that comes to Amazon Prime on the 26th. Uh, nice. Apparently most of the cast of Walking Dead are doing a lot of the voices in there as well. So if you're a Walking Dead fan, there's probably lots there for you. Dota Dragon's Blood comes to Netflix on the 25th, which is an anime series based on Defense of the Ancients, the video game. So if you're a fan of that game, you might enjoy that. Um, the Irregulars, Netflix's Sherlockian kind of YA show, which is potentially going to fill the winks void in my life, but we'll see. That comes out on Friday the 26th. Unfortunately, it is embargoed until the day of release. Make of that what you will. But we were unable to review it on this show, so we may, may get around to talking about next week. Uh, what else is happening? Midsummer Murders <laughs> is back on ITV on Sunday the 21st. If that's, you know, if that's your bag, then that was on on Sunday. Uh, what else is happening? Uh, oh, yeah, so the fourth season of Station 19, which is the firefighter-themed Grey's Anatomy spin-off that comes to sky witness on the 31st i think we're scraping the bottom of the barrel at this point keeping Boy, faith is there anything else keeping I've faith um so, yeah Yo. saturday which um to be honest we should have done as well but only that dropped in the show that's on the saturday the following saturday um so, so when you said there were no alternatives to this sort of soul-sucking <laughs> german horror show, what you actually meant <laughs> yeah i mean you know it's the third series but it's, it's a really that was a really good show eve miles as a as a as a, as a woman whose husband disappears runs out on her and her kids mysteriously in series one and then deals with the aftermath in series two. so series three starts that on saturday we, we could we could you know potentially go review that in the next episode <laughs> But yeah, we'll it would see. have been a better than fucking Alison. Yes, yes, it would have been better than the the sentient sludge and general misery of Housen. What would be our pick of the week? Boyd, I'm going to ask Boyd. I'm not asking Terry this week. Boyd, what's your pick of the week? Oh, I'm a, I don't want to hear the quacking. It's undoubtedly the Mighty Ducks, I'm afraid. 
Oh, you make me want to use Jed Mercurio's favourite word, but I won't. Let's move on. <laughs> well, what's your uh, pick my, of the week? My pick, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Falcon and <laughs> the Winter Soldier. Well, that's it. We're done, I guess. Another episode in the bag. Uh, I will say, if you enjoyed the show, then do please show your appreciation with a nice review. And if you'd like to follow us on social media, we are at James C. Dyer, at Terry underscore White, and at Boyd Hilton. If you'd like to know what we thought of Netflix as the Irregulars, then hopefully we will squeeze that into next week's show, as well as whatever else we're going to be watching. Any idea what else Boyd will be watching next week? Um, no. I have to... I'm running okay. late for a meeting, so... <laughs> Get oh, wrap it up, mate. I see, so wrap it up then, shall we? Okay, fine. Well, yeah. we'll be watching some shows, but Terry doesn't have time to hear about it now, so uh, you've got that to look forward to. In the meantime, I guess I need to get back to the wall and press on with Game of Thrones, because night gathers, and now my rewatch begins. Pilot out. <laughs> <laughs>